Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Pensapolitics, Mr. Watson. I am, of course, your host. As always, forever eternally Christian Watson, it is so good to be with you guys today. Um, you might have noticed, if you are a subscriber to me on YouTube, or if you are subscribed to me on the beloved, excellent, Fed by Ravens Radio Network, which again, I am forever in debt to their support during this trying time. I'm forever in debt um, to their love, to their camaraderie, just everything about them just beams that spirit of generosity, that spirit of brotherhood, as Rosewood or Lane said in Discovery of Freedom, that composes and propagates the human spirit, that composes and propagates our ability to function in a voluntary and peaceful society, that composes and propagates that spirit, that dynamic spirit of freedom that burns through the American foundation and, and goes throughout the, our history and is reflected in the words of our founders, the fire that came from their mouth and went on to pages, the pages of the Declaration of Independence, pages of the Constitution. That is what I see in Fed by Ravens, and that is what I have seen in all of you who have given me condolences. And for those of you who don't know what's going on, my grandmother recently passed. Um, she passed on Thanksgiving Day, actually. And it's been difficult. Look, dealing with loss, everyone handles it differently. Everyone handles it differently. There is no universal idea or universal sense uh, of what loss might do to one's actions. We like to believe that it makes us sad. It certainly made me sad. But there are individuals who deal with losses that are very great or very small who do not allow sadness to reflect upon their being. They like to maintain a strong and stout countenance because anything less in their mind is uh, reflective of weakness, uh, of being emasculated, or of being vulnerable. Because really, when people say, I'm weak, or when they think that they're weak, they really think that they're vulnerable. A strong ship, a strong naval vessel that is ironclad, has all kinds of armor, has anti-air, uh, surface-to-air missiles surround, um, on its decks, and have several other ships providing backup for it. That is strong. The weaknesses there are very, very, very slim. But when you have a vessel, a, let's say you have a, a prototype cruise ship that doesn't even have its armaments um, ready yet, it doesn't even have a full staff, and it's out in the middle of of, of the Mediterranean the Mediterranean Sea, and there are people trying to attack it, well, that's considered weak. And so in the same kind of way, when we deal with tragedy, a lot of folks don't want to have their armaments down, don't want to show that vulnerability, don't want to show the barest side, the barest sense, the barest being that they could be. But it's good to let it all out. It's good to remind yourself that you are a human being. It's good to understand that crying or tears, none of those things are inherently bad. None of those things, especially if you're a man, are going to make you less of a man. This idea of manhood is stupid anyway. I wish we would just just completely defenestrate and, and inca incapacitate this ridiculous idea of manhood insofar as it provides a set of arbitrary prescriptions about how a man is supposed to act if he is going to fulfill the nature of his bodily constitution if he is going to fulfill the sex he was assigned at birth if he is going to fulfill you get my you get, no, don't curse christian sorry you get my point you get my you, you, you get me my point you understand what i'm trying to say to you 
if you have if you live in a country or you live in a state or you live in a community that tries to hold you to a standard you never agreed to be in in the first place if you live in a place that tries to hide tried to hold you to a standard that is reflective of what you were assigned at birth and not what you do in this world do your best to a reject their sentiments so first of all you can do that entirely Reject their sentiments, number one. But do your best if you can to get out of that community, get out of that friend group, get out of that state, get out of that country, or just don't pay attention to them. Because those kind of sentiments are absolutely wrong. Now, I'm not saying that to- toxic masculinity is the big ill. Or no, no, no. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. I think there is a role for masculinity in society. There's a role for the for strong natured stuff in society but that's just that's not predicated upon gender or sex though females can be strong natured and stout in fact, in fact many were um the celtic queen Boudica, who led a druid a, a, a druid offensive against um the roman forces that were advancing upon britannica at that time Anglesey had fallen, the, the Celts were destroyed, Stonehenge was destroyed, everything was destroyed, And but that Celtic queen was one of the strongest warriors that they had. In fact, she was so crazy and wild that many of the Romans didn't want to mess with her. Joan of Arc. I mean, there are plenty of examples of history of women being strong. My point is this, guys. Don't allow someone to say you cannot be a human being because of what you look like or because of what your sex organ is. Because they're 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 not reflecting the truth. They're not telling you the truth. If you're going to be someone, if you're going to be the best person you can be, you have to reflect that philosophical fire to the highest extent. And when I say philosophical fire, it's not a poetic phrase or an aphorism to make you feel good. No, it's a exhortation. It's a beseechment upon on my part to you to tell you the greatness that you have buried deep in your heart, deep in your body, that we reflect every day by our mere fact of living. You don't understand. Life is such a special thing. Life is such a precious thing. So I know this is a political talk show, but I allow myself to be bare and open and naked with you guys because I love all of you. And behind this microphone, there's a human being. Behind this microphone, there is a living, breathing human being. And I want you guys to know, if you ever do it loss or pain or hurt, reach out to me. Of course, I'm not Dr. Phil. I don't have all the answers. No one has all the answers, though. If I can simply be involved in that human compact with you, if I can show grace to you and with you, if I can be there for you in any way, shape, or form, I will. I promise you. You can be human with me. You can reach out to me in the comments of this YouTube video. You can reach out to me if you're listening on the Fabri Radio Network through going to... um, at Official C. Watson on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. You can reach out to me through my email, and I'll give out my email in the description box below. You can reach out to me it's in, in so many ways, guys. My email is at Official C. Watson, by the way. Reach out to me. You're not alone. And I was just astounded about how many compliments and comments I got from people. People, I think people, there are a lot of good folks in this world. 
I think I don't think our human nature is inherently good. I think that we're inherently neutral in terms of human nature. But there are a lot of good folks in this world. Yeah, of course. I just think that our attention we don't so here's the thing. We don't We expect there to be we expect there to be normal things. We expect there to be good things. When there are when when negative things happen, when bad things happen, that's what gets our attention because we we don't really well, we've come to expect it. It wasn't necessarily the default expectation of a lot of social uh, uh, orthodoxy. Because, <laughs> you know, we have rules and standards and traditions, and a lot of them expect us to behave in a certain way. And throughout human history, a lot of us have behaved in accordance to traditions because, you know, they are traditions. But a lot of us have not behaved in accordance to the fundamental laws of our human freedom. <laughs> Sometimes we forsake our human freedom for traditions. And speaking of human freedom, and speaking of traditions, let's talk about Joe Biden's recent push for environmental justice. Yes. So, look, I, whenever these politicians, whether they're on the left or the right, but particularly on the left, push for these concepts, these neologisms that were conceived from the wells of academia and are now being be and not now being pushed through the annals of policy making and enshrined unto the American society through force, not voluntary cooperation, I am naturally suspicious. And so should you, you should be suspicious too. You should be very suspicious of this kind of stuff. See, you've seen a resurgence of this critical race theory thinking Oh, well, not a resurgence, a surge of it, so to speak, in America over the past, I would say over the past few decades, but it's really only hit the public eye over the past few years. Because once critical race theory is once a very um, obscure theory that came from the Frankfurt School, well, actually, no, critical theory came from the Frankfurt School, then critical race theory was a sort of offshoot of critical theory that was developed by people like Kimberly Crenshaw, who worked, who used critical theory methods to analyze race through the same lens. So when folks say that critical race theory is Marxist, they're only right half away. Critical theory came from Marxism or Mar neo-Marxists in the Frankfurt School. Critical race theory is developed with Marxist methodologies and tactics, but it's not per se Marxist. Anyway, um, yes, critical race theory, other than being they're a very incoherent uh, academic rhetorical device and a very poor way to conduct the quest for truth and a very poor way to measure social situations and a very poor way to understand the conditions that play a lot of individuals of the African-American diaspora in the United States. Critical race theory has also been a very, perhaps in this sense, good way for us to get a whole boatload of terms that really mean, that say a lot, but really mean nothing. So from, from, from critical race theory, you get the concepts of, you know, feminist justice or feminist theory or gender theory or queer theory or, or, or uh, an, uh, critical animal studies and all this stuff, which analyzes all of these disparate topics through a singular lens of power and privilege, which, which connects all of these very different topics under the same category, under the same social umbrella, so to speak. And then acts as if they are connected because power dynamics work in a similar way according to these folks. What you're seeing when people talk about environmental justice, you're seeing a default towards the critical race theory thinking. 
So environmental justice is basically the notion, this is what Joe Biden is pushing, that African Americans and the communities of color, let's say communities of color, why don't you just say, and this is the problem, phraseology is another thing about critical race theory, it likes to control the language, it likes to confuse the language, and many times they'll just push out a bunch of word salad to confuse the listener. And make them think, oh my gosh, he's using so many big words in such a unique and different way. This is profound. Most postmodernists do. It's not really profound. Well, it's profoundly stupid. <laughs> it's profoundly stupid, but it's not profound in any other good sense. <laughs> but they'll, they'll use all these vocabulary, and then they'll present this vocabulary as the standard vocabulary. How many times have you heard someone say communities of color? It's a very common phrase, isn't it, friends? Communities of color. Communities of color. Communities of color. Communities of color. People of color. POC. That's, that's the acronym now. Not communities of individuals. Not communities of warm bloody human beings. Communities of color. Well, Christian, you're being hyperbolic. I mean, they, we insinuate that they're human beings. Well, well, well uh, yeah, but I wouldn't be able to tell, though. Because you're saying, you're putting their arbitrary characteristics, their color, before them. So whenever you say community of color, you're actually destroying the individual uniqueness of people in those communities. Well, no, or not. Yes, you are. And this is why I don't like group classifications at all, whether it's uh, classifications that have to do with political affiliation. I don't like them. They can exist in a very limited sense, but they miss the truth of who we are, and they also violate the principles of, of, of differentiation, of individualization. My individuality is very special. And for you to not recognize that is to violate, in a sense, my human being. There's a deontological rule. You can't do that. Although, I suppose if you just don't recognize me in my mind, and you leave that to yourself, you're fine. But the moment you manifest that unwillingness to recognize who I am as a human being, you're not giving me my, my due diligence. So this critical race theory business produces a lot of different topics. And environmental justice is the idea that communities of color, as I mentioned, this, this very odd methodology, very odd phraseology, communities of color are under constant assault by environmental malefactors who love to pollute their communities and use them as waste dumps for toxicity, for other kinds of pollution, for gas, spill out, and so on and so forth. And Flint, Michigan is oftentimes posited as an example of environmental justice, or an example of the need for environmental justice. Of course, you know, their water is not very clean. They had, they had a very big crisis. And Flint is also a predominantly African-American town, I believe. And so there's this idea that African-Americans and Latinos are universally assailed that by, you know, this kind of stuff. And, I mean, when you group people into this umbrella and you try to link their conditions based on their skin color or their arbitrary characteristics, again, you are making a very big leap that may not be reflected by the truth of the circumstances. Poor areas in general tend to be areas that are not the best maintained. They tend to have a lot of... Uh, if you look at a trailer park community, 
in southwest Georgia or in South Alabama, which is predominantly white, I promise you, you're going to see a lot of environmental calamities there as well. You're going to see a lot of litter. You're going to see a lot of, yeah, a lot of probably unclean, unsafe conditions. You'll probably even see a few drug factories. I'm just being honest with you. So I'm not, not being prejudicial. This is just honest. I'm just being honest, people. And this is not to minimize the so-called plight of those communities of color who are allegedly being held by this pollution. It's not to do that. It's something to say that this is not a race problem. This is a income problem. It's not a government problem. This is a problem that we in society can fix. How? Well, very simple. A lot of poor individuals don't have the option to get out. They don't have the option to get out. Even in the presence of welfare programs, even in the presence of Section 8, even in the presence of all the rudiments of the Great Society and the, 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 new, the, the new Deal, every government-anointed pro- there's still the poverty rate is still very high in this country. Because guess what? There's a principle behind it. There's a principle behind it. A universal law behind destitution. And that principle cannot be superseded by force. That principle must be superseded by habituation. Poverty is as much of a a mentality as it is a condition, a physical condition. Most people who are poor in America, most communities of color in America, have access to doctors, TVs, cars, AC, food. Most communities of color in America are not as destitute as you think they are. This is according to the Heritage Foundation. This is according to the Heritage, Heritage Foundation's numbers. So even amongst that sphere, they're doing fine in a sense. They're not as destitute as, they, as, they think, as you think they are. But I find the concept more so to be troubling. Poor areas tend to be places that are not as clean as other areas are because they have less resources down there. Typically, even if they have some, they have less resources and they have less of a means. Therefore, communities of color around the nation are facing an indisputable specter, an an indisputable foe in the form of corporations who are polluting their communities. That's just, that doesn't follow for me. It doesn't follow for me. Yes, have corporations been polluting community? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they have. Yeah. But is it something? Well, we have to ask, is it intentional? They're not it's not profitable for a corporation to pollute a community. But things have happened, yes. And guess what? Governments have also polluted communities as well. The Gold King water spill? The EPA has been a vector for so many environmental catastrophes. A vector. This doesn't take away from what corporations supposedly do. It doesn't. But it puts things in focus. If you're going to create this idea of the community of color, and you're going to to, uh, put so many negative values onto the idea of the community of color, you have to take into account account all factors. And they're not doing this, people. They're not doing this. 
But the idea of environmental justice is even more concerning, in my opinion. What is justice? It's a very complex question. <laughs> a question that echoes back to the ancient Greeks. A question that has been debated from natural law, natural rights theorists like Grotius and Aquinas and Locke and all those brilliant erudite minds. What is justice? What is justice? We've got an entire system in the country that tries to figure that out every day. And I don't intend to give you a solid definition in this podcast. But I do intend to give you a foundation. And I do intend for you to analyze that foundation and understand what justice is from that foundation, you know, building it up in your own mind, and then realize how environmental justice actually transpires and against and, tra- and transgresses against the actual concept of the foundation of justice. That's what I plan to do for you. That's what I plan to do for you. So what is justice? Regardless of what it might be in terms of its articulation, its spirit, its foundation is pretty uniform. Justice is an individual quality. This is not an ancient Greek kind of justice where Plato says you have to call it. No, no. This is a more political, external sense of justice. And whatever that might be, it has to be an individual quality, as Frederick Hayek said, famed economist and philosopher. Justice can only be an individual quality. I can be just or unjust towards you. And you can be just or unjust towards me in your actions. That's what it is. It's an individual quality. That is nature. Now, it's content. Again, that's going to be a little bit more of a complex topic. And actually, I'll do an entire podcast on that, actually. But justice is primarily an individual contribution, an individual quality. When you say environmental justice... You remove justice from its proper station as an individual quality, as an individual quantity. And you place upon it the morass, the weight, the luggage, the baggage, a variety of grievances, supposed grievances, and a large mass of occurrences that go under the umbrella of the kind of justice you've just constructed in your mind. And so when we get back from our break here on the Pepe Ribbons Network and on YouTube and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, I will go more into this and we're going to switch over to big tech. Big tech. I know a lot of people are upset about big tech. (laughs) And I've got some thoughts about that. But I want all of you to stick with me, please. Um, Look, thank you for your support. Thank you for your love. If you want to support me and love me even more, please... Alright guys, welcome back. Thank you so much for being here on the Feather Ravens Media Network and on uh, YouTube and Spotify and Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you are where you get your podcasts, Stitcher, 
Pandora, My Heart Radio, wherever you are, thank you for joining me right here on Pensipolitics, Mr. Watson. So justice, justice. Okay, so envi- we're talking about the idea of environmental justice and how that completely deconstructs and destabilizes the proper form of justice, which is that of, of an individual condition. With me? So if I am respecting your rights, in a sense, I'm being just. If I'm violating your rights, I'm being unjust. If the government is violating your rights, they're being unjust. If they're preserving your rights, they're being just. These are clear qualifiers. We understand what these things are. We understand what these things mean. We understand the nature of these things. These are intuitive, I think, almost. But when you say, I want to be environmentally just, what does that mean? Well, I don't want to affect communities of color in a, in a wrong, in a bad way. So you're, you're, provi- you're providing a utilitarian sense of justice, which means an idea of justice predicated solely upon who it affects, its consequences, as opposed to the rules that it abides by, as opposed to the principles that it's bound upon. It's kind of this idea that you have to have a moderation between the just and the unjust. But Grotius, one of the foremost natural law theorists and a one of the chief proponents of international law, one of the first anti-war theorists, he actually created it. He actually provided the groundwork for just war theory. Grotius said, oh, no, no, no. Justice is either fulfilled or it is not fulfilled. There is no golden mean, Aristotle. There is no consequence, uh, Bentham or Mill. There, no, no. It is entire. Well, he didn't actually say to Bentham and Mill, but he was saying to Aristotle. But, but, but the principle applies still. There, it, justice is justice is justice is justice. It's either justice or it's not. But when you say I want you to be environmentally just, you're saying no. Justice is about consequences entirely, which is the wrong approach to take. Because it's about consequences. Then one could commit. Well, one could pursue justice in an unjust way. If it's solely about consequences. If the end is justice, then does it really matter how you get there if you're trying to regress a perceived harm? I'm not sure it does. Maybe it does. I don't know. I don't think so. It doesn't logically follow to me. That's just one problem with the idea of environmental justice. The idea you can be just to abstract qualities is also a problem. What is, you, you, you have described a few instances of pollution or whatever or, or unclean air in which, in communities in which minorities tend or incidentally live in. But guess what? The air in Los Angeles and really throughout the state of California up until recently and still right now is thick with smog. It's thick with pollution. Los Angeles and Beverly Hills, all that kind of air, it's thick with smog and pollution. The environment, pollution, these chemicals, they don't care what color you are. They don't care what your income status is. They don't care what your socioeconomic demographic is. They don't care what they care about. They Actually, they don't even care about anything. They're not human beings. They're chemicals. And I doubt the people who put those chemicals there, and guess what? It's really just, it's, it's a byproduct oftentimes of these products. 
Well, the product's dangerous. Okay, you can you can argue that they're dangerous. Fine, but you can't say a corporation has an actual benefit in poisoning their customer base. They don't. BP didn't have an actual benefit from losing billions of dollars and making a big oil spill in the Gulf. They didn't have a benefit in that. You didn't want to do. I think, I think BP was just sitting around their table like, "Yes, guys, we're gonna we're gonna poison the Gulf. And we're gonna kill all the fishes." And come on. There's no, that's not logical from a business standpoint or a moral standpoint. It makes no sense. But if you conceptualize corporations in this really profane and idiotic way, I guess it makes perfect sense to you. Because guess what? The problem here with this, we see pollution and we see the bad things that it brings and then we assume certain things about the polluters, because we don't like pollution, yet the pollution and the polluters are different things, different qualities, which happen to interact in the creation of a certain action, i.e. pollution. We have to stop assigning our disdain from for certain actions to particularly those that are done without evident ill intent to the people who perpetuate them. To the folks who cause them. We've got to stop. We've got to stop, people. Well, Christian, are you saying that Charles Manson, we can't assume certain things about him because of his actions? That's not what I'm, what I'm saying is an action as indirect as pollution does not rise to the level of scrutiny that an action as direct as murder or orchestrating murder, which Manson did, would. Those are two different categories. So to say that, you're making a category mistake. Those are two different things. Stop assuming things about the creators of indirect actions. Because you don't like their actions. Seriously. That's the best way to free yourself from this bind of environmental justice. So we've gone through the problems. Number one, it operates with a with the wrong sense of justice. does not through individuals, but through groups. Therefore, it's an abstract idea. And it's also a reflection of the disdain that people have for certain actions that they impose upon the creators of those actions. So it's a fundamentally unsound concept so far we've discovered. And Joe Biden's website even calls for the arresting of these corporations, uh, uh, these CEOs and all these people because because of their actions of their corporation. And he calls for the restricting in the regulation of oil and gas to make sure that they're not doing anything. So if you have an oil, if you have a, if, like, if you have the CEO of ExxonMobil and his company causes pollution, are we going to arrest him because a byproduct of his, co- of his, of his company's product might be greenhouse gases or might be pollution? Are we going to do that? You have to have the justice system in America, guys, you have to have a malice of forethought for these things. There's manslaughter, of course, but that's that's born from negligence. 
And a lot of these CEOs understand what they're doing. And a lot of them, due to the EPA, have tried to limit the amount of pollution, but there's still pollution. And if the scientist, if the scientist is correct, then pollution is a bad thing and it affects people. Okay. But this is an industry that is the most efficient and really one of the clean. I mean, natural gas is pretty clean. Coal is not all that clean. That's why coal is kind of going by the wayside. But natural gas is pretty clean. But it's just this idea that you can hold someone accountable for an indirect byproduct of not even their negligence, just how their product is, just how it's situated in reality. You can't do that and still be just. Joe Biden is trying to chase a dragon in a village. America is the village. And this environmental justice nonsense is the dragon. He's trying to chase that dragon, mount that dragon, and then bring that dragon into town and say, hey guys, this is your new guardian. This is this is this is what we tamed, guys. We tamed this right here. Love us. Stop chasing dragons, people. Don't it's not worth it. It's not worth it. If you want to chase anything, chase the best person that you can be. But also, chase the laws that bind your humanity together and respect those laws in accordance with your interactions with your other brothers and sisters, your other human being brothers and sisters. All right, guys. So environmental justice is a fundamentally unsound concept, and I think that would be best to just ditch it. Seriously. Just ditch it. Because we're not going to get true justice by hyphenating it depersonalizing it, de-individualizing it, abstracting it insofar as it cannot be rooted back into reality and making it about equality that justice cannot just be cannot be assured from. We have to ensure our ideas of justice remain concrete, they remain bound by natural laws and principles, and they remain on an individual basis. Period. All right, big tech. So over the past few weeks, Twitter and Facebook have been making missteps or perceived missteps. And a lot of people, a lot of conservatives have been switching over to Parler. Parler's just grown immensely. I've made a Parler account. I don't promote it, though, for a certain reason. But I've made a Parler account. And I, I, I just find the entire ordeal fascinating because a lot of conservatives who extol the virtues of small government who extol the virtues of individual freedom and liberty, are now saying, forget those virtues, let's go regulate big tech. Forget those virtues. Forget individual freedom. Forget free enterprise. Forget freedom association. Let's go regulate big tech. And that doesn't sit well with me. Because those arguments transpire in the same way that arguments against corporations or businesses in general transpire. Take, for example, the idea that corporations or businesses need to be regulated. This is what a lot of a lot of market regulationists believe, a lot of progressives believe. We have to regulate these things. We have to put in glass seagull. We have to do all this kind of stuff, which broke up the banks back in the 20s because they got too big, apparently. Well, it makes really long, but still. <laughs> we got good work. I do all this stuff because if we don't, People will form monopolies and they'll be too big. And if they fail, everything will go crumbling down. The economy will go crumbling down. 
the idea of having this big, massive corporation is going to destroy us, according to the, that logic. Well, some conservatives are saying, well, look, if there is a monopoly and they are conspiring between each other to keep certain ideas intact or in place at the detriment of other ideas, we need to bring in similar kind of regulation to break them up or to have oversight. This is why Ted Cruz, in a rather unprincipled fashion, in my opinion, called Jack and Mark Zuckerberg into a hearing about the New York Post situation. Now, look, the New York Post is one of the country's papers of record. I respect them. I read them almost every day. A lot of the information that I put on this show comes from either them or Reuters or Fox or whatever or BBC or not CNN anymore because they're going, they're going down the road. In fact, at 7 p.m., the time when this show airs on the Federal Library's Network, James O'Keefe is supposed to actually release something about CNN and tapes that he recorded of producers and anchors colluding to be to put out misinformation and to blind us with the wool over our eyes, with the with the, the darkness of falsehood. And so we'll see about that. But I just, I don't see, I don't see um, th- the principles behind that. I don't see the principles behind corralling big tech CEOs or tech, tech CEOs into their room because of, a, uh, because of something like the New York Post story, which was blocked. What I see is the New York Post saying, hey, look, Twitter, look, this is unacceptable. We're going to limit our time here. We're going to promote ourselves otherwise. We're going to promote ourselves on Parler or whatever, and we're going to go from there. Not, hey, Twitter, we don't like what you did. We don't like your, your rules. Therefore, we're going to call upon the hammer of government to pound you into submission. That's what, that's what Cruz did. And look, I'm oftentimes not critical of right-leaning politicians. Not because I have the deference towards them, but because they tend to do things that I think are fine, sometimes. But when a time arises in which they violate principles, in which they rebel against that spirit of human freedom, which they, which they violate property rights by trying to corral owners of certain properties into their own arbitrary demands, I get mad, I burn with righteous indignation, and I I raise my voice and my sentiments that come off my tongue with that fire of and I say, enough, enough. Well, Christian, they are a public forum. You know what else? If you want a public forum, why don't you go out in the middle of the street and talk to people? Well, it's not efficient. You have a cell phone, don't you? A cell phone was made by was made by big tech, was it not? Apple's big tech, is it not? You see my point? A lot of the modern world is composed of the brainchild and the products of big tech. Big tech. That's not an inherently negative thing. But the sentiments are raised on platforms in which they can exert control. Okay, make your own platforms. And this is what Glenn Beck is saying as well. I mean, Glenn Beck has been talking about this for a very long time. Conservative groups are getting the platform on Facebook, being censored, the fact-checking stuff. There's been memes about, okay, I understand. But if, but if someone is using their property in a way that is anathema to you and your values, don't go on their property. And it's not an excuse to say everyone does it, therefore I should do it too. 
That kind of wretched logic is what allowed some of the most preposterous atrocities to happen throughout the history of humanity. That kind of wretched logic is what allows some of the most intense and obscene and vulgar principle violations, rights violations, to happen. Rights are absolute. Rights are absolute. Rights are absolute. I don't care what the majority of people do. I don't care what Tim down the street is doing. I don't care where the majority of people are. You do not have the right to remove someone's rights because guess what? They're inconvenient to you. Let me say that again. You do not have the right to challenge or remove someone's rights because they're inconvenient to you. I'm not going to say, well, MySpace existed, and uh, you know, if we just hope that Facebook and Twitter go the way of MySpace, it'll be okay. I'm not going to say that. That argument is made too much. But I am going to say is that you don't have the right to supplant someone's rights because you are not comfortable, or you are not okay, or you are not whatever, 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 in cohesion with their practice of their rights. To hell with that. No. Excuse me for cursing, Brian. <laughs> and anyone who might be listening to this and is wondering, why are you cursing? I'm sorry. But I, I'm getting sick of it. I'm sick of this. Facebook and Twitter are not public forums. Well, the courts will rule. I'm sorry. The The rule of the courts does not does not supersede the rule of rights. The courts oftentimes go against rights. I don't care what the courts say. I care what the natural law says. I care what the law of human freedom says. I care what principles say. The courts don't mean anything to me if they don't... If they, the courts mean nothing to me if they don't confirm the, the natural law and natural rights. They mean nothing to me. They mean nothing more than unelected, unelected magistrates, unelected bureaucrats trying to impose their arbitrary and unjust will upon the people. I don't care what the courts think. I don't care what the courts think. I don't care what the courts think. If it is not in conjunction with rights preservation, if it's not in conjunction with the Bill of Rights, I won't say the Constitution, because there are parts of the Constitution which are unjust as well. The 16th Amendment, taxation, I don't think those are just. The Constitution was once used to prohibit alcohol. Prohibition. That wasn't just. <laughs> I love the Constitution, but there are problems with it that need to be fixed. That's why I don't call myself a constitutionalist. Because I'm not. I'm Because rights come before the Constitution. And the Constitution is meant to preserve those rights. And in the first 10 minutes, it says that very neatly. But there are other parts of the Constitution which don't do that. So you have to be for natural rights first and the Constitution second. Get it? I hope you do. So the solution to this big tech argument is very simple. Respect rights and understand that you are leasing a space on someone else's property when you're on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And if that does not bode well with you, go somewhere else. Oh, Christian, this point has been made a thousand times. Well, guess what? Alan Watts said things a thousand times over that Buddhist monks and Bolshevitas said. And yet, he did quite well with himself. 
I don't have to come here with a completely and utterly original thought for my opinions to be valuable. No one talks about this in terms of philosophy. No one talks about this in explicit terms of property rights. They might, they might reference it, it in a very service level way, but not in explicit terms. Well, I do, because it means a lot to me. And these things are important. These values are important. So stop being a victim. Stop whining about how Twitter or Facebook are censoring you. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. And act. Because you are a warrior. You are a sewer, Superman, Superman. You are a hero. There's a hero inside of you waiting to be realized. Take that truth of heroism and act, and act it into reality and do something with yourself, for God's sakes. That's not to say you can't say, hey guys, I think I was unfairly censored. That's fine. But don't try to bring the hammer of government down on these people. Please don't. That's just unjust. And a rights violation. Deal with your problems without resorting to force. And this is a problem just for, this is a an idea just for life people. Deal with your problems without resorting to force. Deal with your problems without resorting to force. If you do that, you'll be much better off and much happier, I promise you. So we're winding down here, guys. We have about four minutes left. <clears throat> Again, I just want to thank you all for your compassion, for your love, for your mercy, for your understanding, for your genius, your emotional genius. You know, emotional intelligence is a very undervalued quality in these days, a very undervalued commodity these days. I want to thank you. I want to say I love all of you. I want to say that you, I appreciate all of you and that the reason I even do what I do is because of people like you. And for all of you who came from Sham Sharma, thank you. I love you too, my Indian fans. I love you guys. We might try to do a Zoom call or a live stream scene with all of you guys. I, I love India is a very fascinating country with a very fascinating history. I find Hinduism very fascinating. I find all that kind of stuff very fascinating. The caste system, how that developed, how that so affects people today. If it does, New Delhi, the composition of the city, I find it all fascinating. And so I truly hope to be able to... Um, Interact with more of you too, because Sham Sharma is a great person. He's a great guy. Um, that interview was good. If you haven't seen it, I'll put it in the description box below. You can go on Sham Sharma Global's YouTube channel. Just type in Sham Sharma Global Christian Watson, and I'll be right there. And of course, I must ask you guys to please, if you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, wherever you are, YouTube, I want you to do a few things for me, okay? I want you to subscribe to me on Apple Podcasts. I want you to subscribe to me on Spotify, on YouTube. My channel is Christian Watson. I want you to comment on this YouTube video. I want you to be able to comment on my Apple Podcasts page. Leave a review if you can, please. That helps me a lot. I want you to share this episode through a link, through the video, whatever, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I want you to help me help you because this is a message that is dynamite and it must be heard because if it's not heard, no one else is going to give it to you. I promise you that. No one else will. Not a single person, but we're going to do it. We're going to be pensive. We're going to blaze the fire of truth through our political system and we are going to make sure that we can fulfill the promise this country was put, built upon and fulfill the promise of our individuality and our humanity. I promise you we will do it. We will do it 100%. You'll do it 100%. I promise you. As Drew Hill said, I never make a promise that I don't keep. <laughs> That's the great R&B group, Drew Hill. Um, good, very good group. And so, when we can get our messages out there, guys, we're, we're going to have a good time. 
So there are a lot of false commentators around here, like Nick Fuentes. And, and I'm just like, you know, if these guys can do it, then we can do it. If these guys can just blaze forth falsehoods and untruths, we can hit them with the truth and with facts and with philosophy. We can do it. I promise you guys. Okay. All right, my friends. We're winding down now. I love you all dearly. I thank you all so much for tuning in to me. And again, I'm honored to be in your living room, on your commute with you, on your exercise routine, wherever you are. I'm honored to be there with you in the midst of that activity, helping you, advising you, enlightening you, hopefully providing value to you. I'm happy to be there. I'm happy to be here. So as always, guys, thank you so much. And please, forever and eternally, I want all of you to do me a big, 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 big favor and never stop ever staying pensive. God bless, guys. I'll see you later.